0: Chapter 16. I invite you to join me. Today we're going to talk about Jesus on possessions. And we have two parables. One of them was read, the rich man and Lazarus. The other one that we're going to talk about is the shrewd manager. And that came, we didn't read it, but it comes right before this passage. And the reason these are connected, we know they're connected, is not just because they're both about money. I'm going to talk about the first parable in a moment, but because Jesus puts a, a, a saying right between these two parables. And it's this it's right in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, Now, you cannot serve God and money. What does Jesus mean when he says you cannot serve God and money? He means something like this. You start off thinking money serves you, but it isn't long before you find out you're actually serving money. You think you own your checkbook, but your checkbook actually owns you. And you think you own your retirement, but your retirement actually runs you. You think you own your bank account, but your bank account. You think you own your career, but your career has a way of owning you and making you the slave in the relationship. And so Jesus here is talking about possessions. He's talking about money, the importance of loving God and putting God first, even above our possessions and making sure that our priorities are in check. So what I want to do today, this morning, is give to you five or six, depending on time, five or six, let's call them maybe myths about possessions that come from these parables. These are myths, things that people believe commonly, uh, and Jesus is going to debunk these into two parables. So let me start with the first one, and it's this. And we're going to draw one lesson, one myth from the first parable, which I'll talk about in a moment, and it's this. As long as you have a big heart, wisdom is unnecessary, all right? In other words, as long as you have a big heart, it doesn't matter what you do with your money. It doesn't matter even if you give your money away. It doesn't matter who you give your money away to. It doesn't matter what charities you support or how you support your family. As long as you have a big heart for God and for people, uh, you can check your brain at the door when you think about finances and money. So I want to jump into the parable and talk about this. The parable begins in verse 1. And we're introduced to a... um, a couple of a couple of characters. Actually, it's an excuse me. Um, yeah, a couple of characters. First of all, there's a rich man, we're told. Now, the rich man here, and this isn't a parable, it's not the rich man in Lazarus, a different a rich man is an owner. Uh, he is someone that is uh we have good reasons to believe he's an upstanding citizen, he does business in the community, he gives all kinds of loans to the people, they pay him back, and he has a manager. The manager here is the steward, is kind of the key to the parable. He could be a slave, he could be a freedman. He has access to the master's books, and he's allowed to give loans and make collections. It's kind of an enviable status among other citizens. He's financially literate, he's obviously literate in general. And it's such a desired position that. People would sell themselves into slavery just to become one of these stewards. It's an incredible privilege to be a steward. Now, it isn't long, verse 1 and 2, where an accusation comes. It seems to come from the friends of the, 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 the rich man in the community that the manager is, get this language, wasting goods. Now, you can't see it in the English, but you know the word for prodigal, for prodigal son? That's the same word that Luke uses and Jesus uses in this parable. And it's only up until recent centuries that we thought of the prodigal son as a separate parable from this one. Uh, if we, in, the, in, the, in the early church, they didn't have chapter divisions, and they all understood that the parable of the prodigal son is somehow connected to the shrewd manager here, because that word prodigal is employed by both. However, no matter how we slice it, he's wasting goods. The owner finds out. Is he stealing? We don't know. Is he mismanaging? We're not sure. Is he neglecting? Collecting the loans, we're not told. He's just wasting somehow. And his accusations come. So what happens is he's fired on the spot, verse 2. The owner called him and said, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you are no longer my manager. That word account is a reference to the books. Give me the books back. I want to collect these. I'm going to collect on my own. I don't want to touch into business anymore. He's fired on the spot. Now what's unusual about this is in the in the ancient world, there'd be some kind of negotiation normally. He would either plead, you know, I've served these so many years, can't you just give me a little bit i on my way out? Or he might find influential people in the community that would come and lobby for his job. Or maybe he'd make a bunch of excuses, you know. I didn't really steal it, I did this, I did that. No, it's actually alone. Nothing like that happens here. It's like a deafening silence that first century listeners would understand. And that's because his silence is a mark of absolute guilt. The man doesn't have a leg to stand on. And so he looks at the master and he, he thinks to himself, and in his mind he says, I cannot dig and I cannot beg. What am I going to do? Digging is that menial you know, labor, that manual labor that the lowest of the low would do in the first century. You'd be digging for rocks, pulling them out of fields. You might put up stone walls, terribly difficult work. He says, I can't do that. I don't have the stomach for that. Maybe he's up in years. He's also unqualified to beg. You know, begging in the first century was kind of an art, really. You know, you go out on the street and you beg, but usually there's something wrong with you that caused people to give to you. You could be blind. You could be deaf. Maybe you were lame. This man is unqualified to beg. He doesn't have any of those marks. So he comes up with an ingenious scheme, verses 4 through 7. He says, I'm going to do something where they're going to receive me into their house. Receive me into the house means they're going to employ me for work. And here's what he comes up with. Verse six, he goes to somebody that owes a lot of money. And in verse six, he cuts a deal with this person. He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So he goes up to one of the people that owed money. It's 100 measures of oil. That's about 900 gallons, about 150 olive trees. We're talking about three years of salary. And he immediately cuts it in half. He so says, just give me half. And he makes them very happy. The second one is in verse 7. 100 measures of wheat. 100 bushels of wheat. You're talking about 8 to 10 years of salary. It's over about 100 acres. And he cuts that bill down to 80%. And by the way, the reason the olive oil is cut in half and the wheat is only cut to 80% it's because olive oil was way more expensive than wheat. And so he's, he's kind of cutting back proportionally. Now, what does the prodigal manager do here? What is the shrew manager doing? What he's doing is he's buying some friendships. And he's navigating this financial world in a way that Jesus is going to make a lesson. Now, I do want to say this. What exactly happened here is a bit of a mystery. I'm going to give you a little reconstruction just to tease our minds a little bit, okay? Some people believe that what he did is he did not necessarily, first of all, some people believe that he just cut the bill in half and now the manager is going to be out money, or the the owner is going to be out money. You owed him $1,000, now you only owe him $500, and he's defrauding the owner. That's probably the most popular view. He's just defrauding the owner, and this is clearly illegal. Now, however, if he does defraud the owner, the people are happy. They think the owner cut the deal, so the owner looks like a hero, and the owner's kind of stuck. So it's possible that that happened. It's also possible that the manager is cutting down the bill and just taking the, the usury off. And so, you know, you give a loan and you might want to get 10% or 50% back, and maybe he's cutting out the usury that the man, that the owner would get, and he's just saying, look, just, just give me what what we gave you originally and we'll call it even. But I don't think that's going on here either. What I think is something a little more ingenious. In the first century, throughout the ancient world, you had something that we call today a commission. Very common in the business world. Matthew, for example, the tax collector, would have a commission. Matthew had to collect X, and anything over that he collected, he could keep for himself. Very common with tax collectors, also very common with debt collectors. And what a lot of people believe is happening is he's not doing anything illegally, but he's just being very shrewd. He's cutting out his own commission. He's not defrauding the manager of the principal or the interest. He's simply cutting out his own commission. And in my view, that's probably what's taking place here. It's not illegal. It's not unethical. It's what he himself is probably owed. And he looks at owner number one and says, let's just take that off the books. Owner number two, let's take that off the books. And by doing this, he makes everybody happy. The manager's happy. The owner's happy, rather, because he got his collection back. He wasn't going to get the commission anyway. The people are happy because they just got a discount. And he's happy because he looks like a hero. He's a shrewd manager. He is someone who navigated the financial world very carefully in order to bring about a desired end. And that's what Jesus seems to be telling us here. Use money wisely for the good of others and the glory of God. Jesus says, look out into the world at how the lost world schemes and plans and plots. They're very careful with how they maneuver. And I want you to kind of view your possessions that way. Look at how cunning they are. Look at how wise they are in their own generation, he says. Being a God-centered person does not mean we check our brains at the door. It doesn't mean you just have to have a big heart. You don't really have to think about what you're doing with your money or your possessions. God wants us to use wisdom, not the kind of wisdom that defrauds people and not the kind of wisdom that hurts others and only advantages us, but the kind of wisdom that makes the most of what you have. The shrewd manager hes called shrewd for a reason. They've been calling him the shrewd manager for the last 2,000 years in church history. Christ tells us here, a God-centered person doesn't mean we check our brains at the door. We want to learn how economies work. We want to learn how the world works so that we can carefully navigate it as the people of God. So myth number one is this. As long as you're a Christian, you got a big heart, you can check your brain at the door when making decisions. No, no, no. We want to move with more wisdom and shrewdness than that. Myth number two. Here's the parable of rich man Lazarus. In the course of this life, it's just a reflection of what's to come in the next a reflection of what's to come in the next. And a lot of people believe this. If you're rich in this life, you're going to be rich in the next. If you're poor in this life, you're going to be poor in the next. And of course, then we see a reversal in the parable. So let's look a little bit closer at this parable, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, we are told a lot about the rich man, and everything we're told about him tells us an extravagant story of wealth. First of all, the rich man is dressed in purple. Purple is not just the color of royalty. There's actually a reason it was the color of royalty, and that's because it was very expensive. And so if you were wearing purple, you probably got that purple dye on the clothes from one of two places. There is a certain snail that they would boil, and if you boil it long enough and hard enough and hot enough and enough of them, you can get this dye that comes out, this purple dye that dyes wool. It's beautiful purple wool. On the other hand, what they would do is there are some there's some shellfish in the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. And if you could get those, you can extract dye out of those. What, this, what they would do is they'd bring a bunch of uh, people on a boat. They'd tie rocks to themselves. And they would drop themselves down. I'm not all the way down, obviously. But they'd go down to the floor as far as they could go. They'd collect shellfish. They, they'd drop the rocks and come back up to the surface. Very dangerous profession. I imagine a lot of people died doing that. So wearing this purple is just a sign of luxury. It's something that most people don't have. He also had fine linen. That means fine underwear. Not just the stuff that people could see. But this guy was so wealthy, he would wear the stuff that people couldn't see. We're told that he would feast, I think the King James says, sumptuously. There's a good word for you. In other words, every meal was fit for a king. In the story of the prodigal son, remember they gored the fatted calf and they had a party? That happened once. This guy has it every day. That's how extravagant his wealth is. This also tells us, by the way, that he did not obey the Sabbath if he's doing it daily. Because there are things you couldn't do on the Sabbath that he's doing on the Sabbath. We're told that his home tells a story of wealth. It's, um, the word is gate. It's not, a, it's not a residential gate. It's actually a word for gates to a city, even though it's his own house. And so this man has extreme indulgence in the face of Lazarus's poverty. Now, I want to debunk a little myth that you and I are thinking about right now. Here's what you're thinking. You're thinking of a gate in Ridgefield, because that's where we live, right? Or Redding, or wherever you live. You're picturing a gate by the street, and then a long, windy driveway all the way to the top where people live. Is that what's in your mind? It's completely the opposite of the picture that we're getting here in the story. These gates were right there. You had kind of a patio where people sat, and the house is literally right there. You could hear the street, and the street could hear people talking. In other words, when Lazarus was laid at the gate of the rich man, he is laid within like 12 feet of where the rich man is sitting with his friends. They're sitting, they're pouring over this table, and this guy that's an earshot over here doesn't have anything to eat, and the dogs are licking his wounds. It's extravagant wealth in the face of poverty. And that's the contrast we get with Lazarus. Lazarus' name means God helps from Eleazar, but God doesn't seem to be helping here. Not yet. He's described as poor. This is a Greek word for beggar. It actually means to cringe. That's where the word comes from. And did you notice in the reading that Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate? He didn't lay there. He was laid there. Why? Because he himself can't even barely walk. They have to drop him off there. The dogs are licking his wounds. Not only are dogs unclean animals, probably here these dogs are the watchdogs. In other words, the the rich man doesn't care about Lazarus. The dogs are trying to take care of him. He's described as having ulcers, terribly painful. The smell, the social stigma. He's starving. All he wants is some leftovers. And the worst part is he suffers alone in silence, never utters a word. He's silent. He's missed. He's not even a pawn and people step over him. He's laid at that gate because he's so ill he can't even beg in the town square. What an irony. The man whose name means God helps has no help from God. Lazarus, once they die, the rich man goes to Hades. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. It's kind of a picture of heaven. And I don't know about you, but if it were me, I would expect Lazarus to explode, wouldn't you? Ha! Gotcha now. (laughs) Remember when I couldn't cross that gate? Now you can't cross this chasm. And now you're over there in torture, torment, and I'm over here in glory. What a wonderful lesson on resentment here. Lazarus does not seek to settle a score. Lazarus does not move with pride. Lazarus moves with humility. And he moves in unison with his God. The judgment comes. We have a lesson on present suffering and future glory. Of course, there's a passage where the rich man asked Lazarus to go back, tell tell my brothers about this, and they'll repent. And Jesus said, if they don't believe the law and the prophets, they're not going to repent. By the way, the rich man here, there's no repentance in hell. Did you notice that? This is really important. There's a, there's a view that people have, like when God judges people, he, you know, they're, they're just trying to repent and God won't let them, you know, that's like a view that probably some of us have. I'm going to agree with C.S. Lewis on this. You know what hell is? I mean, metaphorically, however you want to take, you know what hell is? Hell is a prison that's locked from the inside. Hell is a prison that people don't want to walk out of. It's not like, it's not like the rich man here is just repenting all over himself and they're not, oh, no, you can't do that. It's too late. Although, obviously, in the passage, it is. But the rich man here, there's no change of heart, even in the judgment. That's what's scary. He he treats Lazarus like he treated him when they were on earth. Send the boy to do my work. Send him. Go. Okay. tell him to go dip his finger in water and bring it over here. Why is the rich man doing that? Because he believes the economy on earth is the same one that operates in heaven. The course of this life is a reflection of the one to come, he so thinks. That's a strange universal feeling that I think a lot of people have. Those prosperous in this life, prosperous in the next. The poor, not going to have anything. We tend to feel like this life is going to be a mirror of the next. But Jesus shows an eschatological reversal here. Where the poorest of the poor, Lazarus, ends up in glory and the rich man ends up in hell. Oh, I love this word. We don't have time to park on it, but you know where where Abraham says, Lazarus is comforted? That's an interesting word, isn't it? He didn't say healed, although he's obviously healed. Comforted. I think that tells us that the emotional pain Lazarus felt was probably the worst. More severe than the physical? More severe than anything. The man sat under immense emotional pain. And God healed his emotional pain. That's what he's going to do for all of us. This life is not a reflection of the one to come. The last shall be first. The first shall be last. There's a play on the name Lazarus. God helps. Does God help him? Yeah, he does by the end. pastor wrote this down this week. I I kind of plucked it off the internet. and I'll just read it. When you die, don't worry about your body. Your relatives, funeral staff, they'll do it. I know firsthand I've done it myself. They'll take you out of the house, deliver you to the funeral home of your family's choice. They'll take off your clothes. They'll wash you. They'll dress you. They'll apply makeup. Many will come to the funeral. They'll cancel their plans. Your things, the things you hate to be borrowed, they'll be sold, donated, burned. Your keys, your tools, your books, your CDs, your collections, everything. And be sure the world will not stop and cry for you. The economy will continue. You're going to be replaced by someone at work, someone that has the same or better abilities. Property will switch airs. People who once knew you will say, poor thing. Your friends will cry for a few hours, a few days. They'll laugh. Your pets will get used to a new owner. The picture's hanging on the wall for a while, but they'll come down and there'll be furniture Someone else will sit on your couch and eat from it. Deep pain in your home will last a year or two, maybe ten. Then they'll join the memories of everybody else. In a new life, you'll only need your soul. The only property that will last is the soul. Hmm, It's probing, isn't it? That's what we Christians labor for. Because we know what we have in this life, we don't carry to the next. Not your couch, not your pet, not your furniture. We carry our soul. And that's why it's important that our hearts are right with God. Three, I'm going to move quickly here. My wealth gives me some kind of step up into the next life. So so here we say something like this, like, all right, but all this has to count for something, doesn't it? I mean, look at how much money I have. Look at how prosperous I am. It's got to count for something, even a little bit. Money is the currency of this world, but we're finding out in the parables that money is not the currency of the next And by the way, we have to make sure we we properly understand this. Not all rich people are unrighteous, not by any stretch. We've got a whole slew of rich people in Scripture that were very righteous. Job, most upright in the land. Moses, Abraham. Abraham was so rich that when he left his father's house, they had a massive caravan that went off into the wilderness with him. You know where they ministered in Rome at a man named Gaius' house? Gaius is a very wealthy person. David's a very wealthy person. A lot of rich people in Scripture that we should admire. That's good. Joseph of Arimathea, buried Jesus. He's rich. He had his own tomb. Not all rich people are ungodly. Not all poor people are righteous. Lazarus happens to be. But the Proverbs tell us there's all kinds of reasons that people can be poor. Sometimes it's systemic. Sometimes it's hard times. Sometimes it's physical or mental issues. But the Proverbs tell us sometimes it's laziness. Sometimes it's lack of wisdom. Not all rich people are unrighteous. Not all poor people are righteous. The point of the passage is not to make those points. The point is to appreciate that money does not advantage or disadvantage us before God. It doesn't give us a leg up. Frankly, it doesn't give us a leg down either. Lazarus' poverty counts nothing against him. And the rich man's wealth counts nothing for him. The currency of this world is dollars and cents. The currency of heaven is the righteousness of God that is put on our account. Number four, we can live any way we want because once this life ends, that's all there is. Is another myth. One thing we can see here, whether rich or poor, everybody stands before God and gives an account. I love this verse in Ecclesiastes. You know, I remember the first time I read through Ecclesiastes, this one stuck with me. It's a question. How dieth the wise man? Like the fool. (laughs) How dieth the rich man? Like the poor. How dieth the athletic? Like the invalid. How dieth the smart? Like the dumb. Everybody dies. The rich, the old, the poor, the young, male, female, educated, uneducated, good-looking, not-so-good-looking. Bill Gates will stand before God and give an account. The man living under the Brooklyn Bridge right now, he will also stand before God and give an account. We all do. Just as people are destined to die once after that, they face the judgment. Everybody stands before God at some point. There's a scene in Revelation. This is interesting. You know, when we stand before God, it says heaven and earth flee. That's interesting, isn't it? What does that mean? That means when we stand before God, it's complete spiritual and moral nakedness. There's nothing to hide behind. You can't hide behind people. You can't hide behind trees. You can't hide behind excuses. Heaven and earth flee. And we stand before God and give that account. We are called to live generously in this life because we're going to give an account. and We want to be ready for that moment when we stand before the Lord. All right, number five is this. It's a little bit unrelated, but... Faith is a matter of logic. If you just help people connect the dots, they'll be generous. Flip to six if you don't mind. Whoop, maybe I misordered these. All right, here you go. Faith is a matter of logic. Just help people connect the dots and people will be generous. So what we learn here, we could do a whole lesson on this. I encourage you to read through this carefully uh, in the parable. We learn a lot about faith here. Faith is a matter of the heart. There's a feeling that a lot of us have that if we can just get evidence, people will believe. If you can just convince people of the evidence, they'll believe. Uh, In other words, the rich man says, if you send someone back from the dead and you tell them about this, my brothers will believe this. And what does Jesus say? No, they won't. (laughs) Because even a miracle like that is not going to change the heart. Evidence does not mean people come to faith. I'm not saying there's not a place for that. People are not logical, rational thinkers. This is something I've had to adjust in my pastoral ministry. This is something I have to adjust about my own thinking. When I first became a pastor, I believed that people were pretty much logical and reasonable. That if you just give them the dots, they'll connect the dots the right way, and then they'll come to faith. But I've learned over the years from reading Scripture and just watching people, passages like this, People are very irrational in their thinking. You can present all the evidence you want, pack it one on top of the other, where you think it forms a straight line, and uh, Paul Simon says, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. It's a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of just the intellect. It's not a matter of just being convinced. And by the way, this did happen. Remember when the other Lazarus came back from the dead? Not this one, but the one in John 11? John 11. What did the Pharisees do? They tried to put him to death a second time. Why? Because they're irrational thinkers. Faith is more a matter of the heart than just connecting the dots in our heads. There's this uh, place where uh Bert Ray Russell, the great atheist, was asked, you know, what if someday you stand before God and you find out there is a God? What are you going to say to him? And Russell said something like, I will say to him, why did you hide yourself so? <laughs> you know. A lot of what we do rests on the assumption that people are rational beings. There's a great study, if you want to read it, Jonathan Haidt, uh, the sociologist, famous sociologist, where he collected, a, a, you could do some Christians another way, he collected a group of atheists, okay? And he said, uh, I, will you sell me your soul for a dollar? Now bear in mind, you're an atheist, you don't believe in a soul, you don't believe in the spirit. And he said, would you sell your soul for a dollar? You know? And he said, most, most people won't sell their soul for a dollar even if they don't believe in a soul. He actually wrote a contract up. It was something like, you know, I think it said something like I read. this form uh, is in part a psychological experience not binding in any way. And then he put down something like, I so-and-so sell my soul after death to Scott Murphy for the sum of $2. People wouldn't sign it. I think like only 23% of the people signed it. He upped it to $50. People wouldn't sign it. If you don't believe in a soul, why wouldn't you sell your soul for a Big Mac? It doesn't make any sense. You want to know why? I just told you, people are utterly irrational. They're not logical thinkers. We think if we can just connect the dots, people will come to faith, they'll be generous, they'll follow Christ. That's not true. It's a matter of the heart. There's this mystery. It's a real mystery of faith in the heart that God does this transforming work, and people have to respond to that. The last point I want to make is this, last myth could be the most important one is you need to go to the ends of the earth to do the work of God. You need to go to the ends of the earth to do the work of God. Again, right in the parable here, we find the gate. And the gate is not this long, windy road like we have in our communities. We have automobiles. This is like a city street. And there's a gate, and there's the rich man, and Lazarus is literally outside, possibly leaning up against the gate. And to do the work of the Lord in the area of giving and caring and taking care of people, we don't have to go all the way to the other side of the world to do that. Now, God bless those who do. We're looking at a world crisis right now, aren't we? I think going on with Ukraine. and I imagine a lot of Christians right now are starting to mobilize and think about how do we do mercy and how do we do ministry in those parts of the world that are in such turmoil. I love when people think in those directions. But I also like when people step back and say, you know, I don't need to go to the end of the world, the end of the earth, to do the work of God. I can literally just go outside of my gate. And there are people right there that need love. They need compassion. They need the ministry of the gospel. Sometimes they need financial help. So we as a church, it's good for us to think globally, isn't it? It's also good for us to think right outside our own gates and what God might be doing. Father, thank you for your love and your care and your concern. Bless us, keep us, help us to walk with you. May the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. Help us to be the people you've redeemed us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.